This week's TribCast is sponsored by Episcopal Health Foundation. From skipping medical care to financial hardship, Episcopal Health Foundation's new survey shows how COVID-19 is affecting Texans in many different ways. Find out more at EpiscopalHealth.org. And Texas Bankers Association. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Texas community banks have led the way in providing PPP loans to help small businesses survive. Learn more at TexasBankers.com. Welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast for November 25th, 2020, the day before Thanksgiving. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune, and I'm pleased to report that I managed to find three other Texas Tribune journalists <laughs> who are working today in order to bring you a TribCast. We have with us today Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Probably need air quotes around that working word. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, politics reporter Cassie Paul. Uh, good afternoon. And education reporter Aaliyah Swaby. Hello. Thank y'all for joining us. Um, I'm going to start today with the story that you wrote, Cassie, on Dade Feeling this week, a, a kind of profile aimed at kind of introducing our readers to the, uh, let's call him the presumptive. House Speaker for 2021. Phelan, mm-hmm. of course, has announced that he has the votes to become the next Speaker, and uh, no one is really disputing that anymore, although, you know, something weird could happen between now and January. Cassie, you talked to a lot of people for this story, and I wrote down some of the quotes, some of the things they said about Phelan. A man of integrity, honest, down-to-earth, thoughtful. He just wants to be a Speaker who calls the balls and strikes. Uh, it's also worth noting that Texas, we quote Texas GOP chairman Alan West calling him a Republican political traitor. But for the <laughs> most part, we had people saying kind of nice things about him, calling him well-respected and the like. Not completely shocking for that to be happening. You know, if you're if you're a member of the House, you want to say nice things about the speaker before he comes in. But nonetheless, the portrait that you kind of drew here is of a person who, um, you know, the, the members seem to expect will be kind of playing nice this session with the other members. Tell us a little bit about, Cassie, what you what you learned about him and, and what you think that might mean for the upcoming legislative session. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you pretty much summarized it really well, just in terms of what members are saying uh, about Dade Phelan heading into his uh, new speakership. Uh, I tried to talk with, uh, you know, re- Republicans, Democrats, Republicans from this faction, Democrats from that faction, just to try to get a good sense of of whether uh, everyone across the board, at least publicly, is willing to say that that he's a straight shooter, that he's honest, that he's transparent. Um, you know, one thing that really stood out to me is Feeling, I you know, has, has only been in the House since 2015. He was, of course, a former staffer at the Capitol uh, when he was in college and shortly thereafter. But members had so many anecdotes just about how feeling, uh, you know, personal anecdotes uh, about how this time that that feeling went out of his way to to co-sponsor a, a bill or uh, whatnot, just to help kind of get them through the finish line. You know, by no means were they asking him to do it or uh, anything like that. He just kind of 
uh, stepped up and, and did it uh, pretty unassumingly. And so um, that was that was really interesting uh, to me just as I was reporting the story out. And, you know, I think it'll be just, you know, not that uh, I guess it's just interesting. And it says a lot about where the house ended up on a candidate like Phelan, as the story reports. And, uh, you know, as I think everyone who follows the legislature knows, uh, the House is uh, still pretty fractured, right? You know, we had a really, uh, really testy election cycle. Uh, millions, tens of millions of dollars were spent. And before that, we had a, a you know, political scandal with uh, the current speaker who's now retiring. And so um, bridges have been burned. And I think what's going to be really interesting is is heading into this, uh, you know, tough, tough legislative session, whether Dade Phelan is able to kind of spearhead the killing of some of those relationships so that business can actually get done. Ross, I think one of the things that we've observed from politics for a long time is that a lot of times when you have someone in a big, prominent, powerful position, when that person leaves either by their own kind of willingness or because they're, you know, outside of their own volition, people tend to be interested in choosing a replacement who has some kind of opposite qualities. You know, you get the tall president, then you get the short president or, you know, whatever kind of opposite things you get. Why, you know, right now we have Donald Trump the kind of hard-charging fighter, we have now elected the Joe Biden, the person who really ran on kind of de- decency and hearing out both sides and things like that. Are we seeing a little bit of that with the speaker where, you know, we previously had Dennis Bonin. The thing that brought him down was kind of his willingness to, you know, tell members one thing about the upcoming election and then behind closed doors do another thing. Is, is Dade feeling sort of an anti-Dennis Bonin in that regards? Well, I think he's probably a smoother character. I think the politics are very similar. Their ideology seems to be, you know, sort of the same. And the House is kind of where it was two years ago when they were picking Bonin. They want somebody who'll stand up to the Senate. And, you know, in the last few years, the it used to be that the House was the gas pedal and the Senate was the brake. In the last few years, that's kind of switched over. So they wanted somebody who was going to be kind of the brake on the Senate, going to be kind of calm, keep things serious but also was going to get along and who they you know, felt like they could trust. I, I think the problem that Bonin had was he had a really good session in 2019 and came out of that you know, with people saying the kinds of things about him that people are saying about Dade Phelan now. And then when he had a private conversation with a political activist taped and then revealed to the public and you know, he was saying different things privately than he was saying publicly, then his speakership came apart. Um, so I think they want to bond in with a little more polish and without the uh, public-private dissonance. Right. So we talk about differences in personality, but as you noted, Ross, the the House members at the end of the 2019 session were pretty happy about the way things went. And it was those things that happened afterward, the secret recording with Michael Quinn Sullivan that ended up bringing Bonin down. So we might be talking about different personalities, but Cassie, I mean, Dave Phelan, right, was part of the kind of leadership team under Bonin. Do we expect him to kind of aim to lead the House the same way? And if so, is that part of the reason you think why he was selected as well? You know, I think that's certainly what he that I think that's certainly what part of his pitch was to members is he was making a play for speaker. Uh, you know, Matt Krause, we quoted in the the story, he's, you know, a member of the 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 Conservative Freedom Caucus. He said, you know, I think Phelan just wants to call balls and strikes. And that was kind of Bonin's MO, and that's kind of what earned him uh, you know, uh the uh you know, the the recognition from last session. You know, I remember a story 
Matthew, that I think you edited near the end of uh, last session, <laughs> just kind of wrapping up uh, Bonin's first term as speaker. And, you know, we had Tony Tinderholt and Celia Israel both quoted saying that, uh, you know, Dennis Bonin was the was the perfect guy for the job this time around. Um, and it's because he kind of, you know, he 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 gave members a feeling of of of, uh, you know, them being in charge of driving the business of the chamber of the the, the chamber being a member driven body. And I think that's largely what uh, members, uh, you know, have been told uh, with with a feeling speakership and uh, certainly what they're expecting. Do we feel like it's supposed to be I mean, last time there was so much of the kumbaya, like that's a word that I hope is retired <laughs> forever from our vocabulary <laughs> because of how much we heard it last session. Do we have, is it too early to say yet whether there's going to be the same thing between the top three um, this upcoming session? Too early. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, th it's interesting listening to the beginning of anybody's tenure because, you know, people say all of these great things and put all the laurels on them and everything. And then you sort of watch the leaves dry up on the laurels. And, and, you know, I'm interested to see at the end of this session, whether anybody's got the same sort of bloom about them or perfume about them as they do at the beginning, it's going to be a very hard session. There's going to be a lot of budget cuts. There's probably going to be a lot of tough negotiations. I mean, you know, you cover public education. There's probably going to be a lot of, um, spitting and cussing around that. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think the words people are saying about the three, you know, the top three uh, will be the opposite of kumbaya, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, you know, I kind of had a similar question, which is, but getting at it in a different way, which is, you know, the things you mentioned, budget cuts, obviously going to be extremely difficult, and those are going to be contentious, but then also redistricting, right? And just redistricting is necessarily a thing where there are going to be winners and losers and they're going to be people who are going to be angry and trying to throw their body in front of things and things like that. I mean, does the kind of nice speaker model work in a session like that? Can you, can you get through a session like this without, you know, pissing people off? You're a father, you know how this works. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes you're good dad and sometimes you're the blue meanie, right? Um, <laughs> And that, that's kind of what the, the Speaker of the House does. And it's what the Lieutenant Governor does in the Senate. I mean, you know, you're nice until you're not. And, you know, you're right. Redistricting always draws out um, the most competitive, combative streaks in all of the 150 members. And the, and the Speaker's job in some part is some measure is to kind of keep everybody on the leash. Yeah. I'm curious, like, you know, last session, there was just so much talk and, you know, we were trying to get the temperature in both chambers and particularly, particularly in the House, kind of the feeling was that Republicans were staying so focused on property tax reform, on school finance reform, because they were heading into 2020, right, where they knew that, that they were at risk of losing the chamber or um, whatnot, just given how the 2018 elections panned out. So I'm just curious how Republicans are going to carry themselves at the Capitol uh, this time around. And, you know, I should just probably specify like the House, right? Uh, especially with redistricting, especially with budget cuts, uh, with redistricting, you know, with the redistricting process now, you know, uh, for, for sure going to be a, a totally Republican controlled one uh, since Democrats didn't flip the chamber. I'm just curious if it, if it changes, uh, you know, the way at which they approach the issues um, versus uh, last session. Yeah, you know, uh, Aaliyah, you already mentioned the kumbaya session, the other kind of tired uh, refrain that people used to describe the last session was bread and butter session, right? right. They didn't focus on the uh, 
the big hot button social issues that have kind of animated the capital in recent years, they instead focused on school finance and some of these other big issues. It'll, I'm, you know, I think one of the big questions going into this session is, are the conservative Republicans going to be willing to do that for a second session in a row? Especially considering that one of the reasons that lawmakers were willing to do that last time was kind of worry about the 2020 elections and, and whether the Republicans' grip on the Capitol and in the House in particular was as strong as it once has been. We got through this session. Republicans didn't lose a single seat in the House. Mm -hmm. And now we have this uh, outspoken new chairman of the Texas GOP, who we previously mentioned, who has made pretty clear that he's going to be out there banging the drum for some of these issues, you know, uh, is feeling going to be interested in bringing up some of those issues? And is the are if the answer to that question is no, are the Republicans going to allow him? I mean, one interesting kind of anecdote that Cassie included in your you included in your story was about his handling of the paid sick leave bill in, yeah. in 2019. Can you kind of walk us through what happened there and, and, and what Phelan had to say about it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Phelan under Dennis Bonin was a uh, chairman of the, the powerful state affairs committee, obviously, uh, oftentimes takes up really controversial hot button social issues just over, over the years, over the past legislative sessions. And one of those ended up being this, this paid sick leave measure. And, uh, you know, a version of it was filed in the House, a version of it was filed in the Senate. And in the Senate, uh, language was removed from from the measure uh, that LGBTQ advocates and others worried um, would would put, uh, you know, th those types of communities at risk. Um, so and ends up getting sent over to the House late night hearing and, and Dade Phelan ends up adding that language back in uh, to the bill. Um, and I think it was maybe the, the, the morning after that really late night hearing, he was on a, uh, you know, a podcast, uh, interview with, with Evan Smith and, and said, look, I just wasn't, you know, I put that language act back in because I didn't want to run the risk of this bill becoming a vehicle for, for discrimination. Um, and he also, you know, said quite bluntly, I'm done bashing on the gay community, which we at the legislature have, you know, uh, done on occasion, or we've taken up issues that, that risk to do that on occasion. So, um, that certainly stood out to Democrats and, you know, it came up quite a bit as the speaker's race progressed, just, you know, feeling compared to some of the other Republicans who were, uh, in the race, just how feeling had kind of done that, uh, in a moment where, you know, uh, other Republicans weren't, were maybe, uh, doing it, uh, you know, to the extent that he had kind of taken a position on the issue. Very good. Well, let's take a break now and hear from our sponsors. Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. And the Poinsett Firm is an Austin-based lobby firm guiding businesses in solving their high-stakes problems at the Texas Capitol. Learn more at poinset.co. All right. So another big article that we had in the past week was the one that you wrote, Aaliyah, that began like this. Almost midway through the school year, it has become increasingly clear that virtual learning is failing a sizable number of Texas public school students whose parents decided to keep them home as COVID-19 grips the state. As a uh, parent who is dealing with some level of at-home learning myself, this story hit home with me, and I will uh, 
reserve my right later in this conversation to go <laughs> on my own personal rants. But before we do that, yeah. Can you just kind of walk us through what your story found and, and what the state of e-learning is in, in Texas right now? Yeah, so uh, I got to this story because I wrote one earlier about the fact that failing rates for kids who were learning at home had skyrocketed in districts across the state, and I was trying to get to the why of that question. Um, I interviewed more than 30 educators and parents and even students who reached out to me on social media to try and share their stories after that one. Um, and I found that a lot of it could be traced back to the summer, basically when the state um, delayed guidance and just kind of uh, wasted time bickering with local officials, um, not Give it, I mean, relying on the idea that they were going to go back in person instead of actually preparing for remote learning. And so teachers had a couple of weeks, a few weeks to plan for a fall that was going to be very different than anything else that they'd experienced. And in, one in which the state had planned to go back to normal, basically, and get grades back up and running and get classes, you know, as hard as they were before the pandemic. Um, when in the spring, kids had really been or or schools had really been lenient on on learning and, and a lot of kids didn't really get new material. Now you have basically the same level of preparation, maybe a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit of improvement in virtual learning. But classes are harder. Kids are getting way more assignments than they're ever than they ever were before, so much so that they're overwhelmed by them. I heard from parents who said that they would just told their kids not to do some of the assignments because they were getting too overwhelmed. Um, I've heard, and this wasn't in the story, but I'm planning on um, writing this later. I've heard from um, parents whose kids have just been, um, you know, their mental health has been so affected by this um, that they are like seeking, you know, psychiatric care because of the, the intense amount of pressure that virtual learning has put on them. Um, and I think that was in the design of remote learning. Um, that's not something that's because kids don't understand the material, um, or that's not the, at least that's not the only reason. It's also because it was designed really poorly and it wasn't designed to succeed. Bear, bear with me on this, but the, reading your story last week, it called to mind in a strange way, kind of the early days of my career in journalism <laughs> where I was working for print newspapers that were trying to convert to the digital world. And you had all these people who had worked at these papers, you know, for a very long time, they had been hired for a particular set of skills, which was putting out a print newspaper. They had done that their entire life. And then all of a sudden you're telling them, okay, no, now we need to be a digital newspaper as well. And in addition to that, you can't stop doing the, print newspaper duties because we also have to put out our print newspaper and it and it took those you know newspapers you know more than a decade to kind of figure out how to do that balance here we're talking about schools that are having to figure this out in a matter of months and you know again it's they're not trained to do this they're they're all their experience all you know they were hired based on their skills in the classrooms and now they're having to do this online thing and it's just you know, these big organizations, it's extremely challenging to to kind of turn on a dime like that, um, much like it was for the newspapers. You know, one thing that really stood out to me in your story was just the line that a simple task like taking attendance now lasts 
more than twice the usual time as teachers hunt for evidence that a student reached out or completed an assignment, right? There's all these things that these teachers are doing that, you know, they, they never signed up for in the first place. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, the, um, the doing print and doing digital is basically the like analogous to teachers who are teaching kids in person and online at the same time and schools having to design programs that would work for both students or for both groups of students. I think some schools, a lot of schools did try to design systems where a set group of teachers would teach just virtual and a set group would teach just in person. But because of social distancing and because of staffing limitations and financial limitations that just actually didn't work out in most districts that I've talked to. Um, so you have just trying to do both at the same time. Um, and it's not working. I mean, ultimately, they're doing ultimately they're doing both poorly in a lot of places. Like I, I think this was focused more on remote learning because we're going into a surge in COVID-19. You see schools that are shutting down for weeks at a time because they've had a number of um, you know, infections on campus. And you know, more likely it's community spread that's leading to kids bringing it um, to, or teachers or, or whoever else bringing it to campus. But online learning is not going away. Um, even if, you know, I know Texas has made it easier for, for districts to bring students back in person if they're failing online. Um, by basically allowing them to not give them, you know, other real options. Um, that's not going to necessarily make everything better, given the fact that there are some cases in which districts have to resort to online learning, especially if COVID is spreading in their in their schools. Right. And, you know, one thing that really also stood out in the story was how this is not happening, you know, proportionally across you know, income levels and 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 race uh, and demographics. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I believe the number in your story: twenty five percent of students are learning from home in majority white districts, while in majority low income districts, it's sixty seven percent, seventy seven percent in majority Hispanic districts, and eighty one percent in majority black districts. And I think about this, you know, every time I read a story like this, every time this subject comes up, I think about how just the long tail of this, right? I mean, we were already in a situation where the wealthier districts, the wider districts tended to have better outcomes because of all the different inequality in the education education system. And now we're talking about situations where, you know, I told you I was going to bring in my personal experience here. My daughter was in first grade when we went uh, online, you know, at the end of last school year. Now she's in second grade. And, and she was, you know, that's the year you're really learning to read. Mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden she went home and all that training went away. And, and I worked with her and have continued to work with her and have been, you know, really thrilled about all the progress she has made. But there have been other parent kids who went home to households where there wasn't English speaking spoken in the household. And and how does how is that kid supposed to make the same amount of progress? And how is that kid going to come back in third grade, you know, after not being in school for a year and a half and expect to be able to keep up with all the other kids? And, you know, and there's there's going to be so much work that's going to have to be done to try to catch those kids up. And, you know, I, I really worry that it's it's just, you know, is it even going to be possible? Right. Yeah, you definitely have 
already had a system where things are unequal in kids' homes. I think that a lot of experts have pointed out that COVID and uh, virtual learning is pointing out disparities between families and the resources that they have access to more so than before. You know, we think of schools and public education as sort of like an equalizer of sorts. Obviously, that's not totally the case given the, the disparities in resources certain schools have. But Schools are supposed to be making up for some of those things that kids have at home. When you have kids at home and, you know, some kids' parents are able to pick up the slack and some kids' parents are picking up the slack in the sense that they're working to, you know, provide their kids with with food and, and have to do that outside of the home so that they can't actually be um, teachers for their kids. You know, there's just different priorities that have to be the case and schools can't really step in in the same way. Um, because of the way that, you know, that remote learning is designed, but then also because of things that are outside of school's control. Like, I think some of this is just going to be hard no matter what because of those existing disparities. Right. I mean, that's one of the things I was wondering about is the, is there a scenario, is there somewhere, is there a different state where, where this is going well? Or is this just a situation where it's terrible and there's no real good solution? I don't think there's no good solution. I think that it is happening poorly in a lot of states, um, uh, is what I've heard from experts and from the people who have reached out to me from other places. Um, what I've heard from experts, and I want to do a separate story on this down the line, is that there really should be different priorities associated with this year, right? Like you should be trying to make sure that students are okay in terms of their mental health. You should be trying to make sure students have all the resources that they need to be able to, you know, survive this year. I mean, there are kids who are like, you know, contemplating suicide. Like I, I think that the the stakes are really different than just, or are much higher than just academic stakes. Obviously those are important too, but if you change your conception of what this year is supposed to be, then you can have a year that's much healthier for kids who, you know, some of them have had family members die from this um, or die from other things or are have been evicted or, you know, any other number of things. Um, if you focus on, you know, having the same goalposts as you did during a normal year, then it's always going to be, you're always going to fail by those metrics. Do they have a better handle now um, than they did on how many kids are just missing? You know, at the beginning of this, there were numbers that were that I think you wrote about that were like in the 20 to 25 percent range in some places. Um, is that still a big cohort like that? Yeah, I'm not sure what it's like statewide. That's one of the numbers I'm tracking down. I I don't want to misreport it. I know there was one report of, of those numbers, but it is a it is a significant number of kids who I mean, it, it's partially because they're just kind of dropping off the face, you know, like not going to school anywhere. But also it's that districts are having a harder time tracking kids who have switched schools um, and kids who may have switched to different states. Like I um, interviewed a family a while ago who was living in a hotel because they had been um, maybe not formally evicted, but they had to leave their apartment. Um, I checked in with that family recently and she was like, oh yeah, we, we moved to Massachusetts. Um, because like we could, like things got really bad for us here. We had to move to Massachusetts. So that's where we are now. Right. That's probably happening all over Texas, you know? 
it, it sort of goes back to what Matthew was saying about, you know, um, losing these kids in a way or losing these critical years in a way, because, you know, in some ways schools are going through what all businesses are going through. This is what retailers are doing and what restaurants are doing and all of that. But it, but the difference here is that you have to get every kid, you know, ideally, you want to get every kid across the line. And there's, you know, some kids that are in it and not getting the education they would otherwise be getting. And then there's kids that aren't in it anymore. It's just, you know, it, it, I think it's going to be, you know, uh, like like either you or Matthew said, something with a really long tail on it. Mm. Yeah. So one question I have here is, you know, we talked about kind of the racial disparities, the disparities in income. And I suspect that one of the reasons for that might be the kind of political differences around COVID, right? You know, some of these exurban areas, some of these more conservative areas that tend to be whiter um, also tend to have residents in there who are frankly just less scared of COVID and have leadership mm-hmm. that are less scared of COVID. You know, we, you just kind of hear this anecdotally, just not even talking about education. When you get outside the big cities, you see fewer people wearing masks and things like that. And, and so maybe is it a situation where the, the wealthier exurbs and things like that, um, people are going to school and the, the, the cities that are more diverse have more low income people in, in many cases are, are more hesitant to go into school. But we also know that it seems as though a lot of the spread is not happening in the schools. I mean, should should these big city districts be thinking more about being more willing or, or more encouraging of getting students to to come to class? Yeah. So this is something that I've heard from some superintendents is the requirement from the state that they allow all kids back who want to go back largely, you know, there's some exceptions to that, is limiting their ability to really be flexible. Like, ideally, you would be able to say, like, okay, like, higher income white kid, like, with a bunch of resources at home, um, and parents who are, like, working from home, or like a stay-at-home mom, or whatever it is, like, you don't have to come into school in person, right? Like, it's really like kids with special needs. It's really like kids who are already failing, like even before the pandemic, who need to be in school. And so that's the way that we can navigate this so we can social distance in school, like we can still keep all of the safety requirements that are probably keeping um, COVID from spreading in schools. And also we can be like getting the people who really need it, the in-person instruction that they need in a situation like this. And maybe it would be a way where they could retool virtual learning. Like if more of their kids doing virtual learning um, were kids who were strong academically and like had resources, then maybe you could do that, both of those things better. But because of the way it's set up, you can't actually really have a system like that. Um, Not for the whole year, like the state does not allow that. So I think that's that's one of the the issues that you see in in not being able to actually design a system that works for you know as many of the vulnerable kids as possible. Uh, let me throw you one last question, which might be a bit of a curveball, which is you know we are of course coming up on a legislative session. Are there any proposals or ideas out there at this point? Are you hearing anything about things that the state? or the legislature can do to help with this either. I mean, you know, a lot of these bills won't won't 
be passed in this upcoming session till toward the end of this school year anywhere way, but even maybe addressing kind of what we've kind of described as the long tail of this in the future. I haven't done a thorough look at this. I do think one of the populations that has been getting attention is kids with special needs. Um, you know, the state has just failed them for so long and the pandemic is really exacerbating a lot of that. Um, you know, I know that in the beginning of this year and def <clears throat> definitely in the spring, they were not, some of them weren't getting the services that they needed to get due to the pandemic. And, and, you know, the state has provided some resources, but it's not been like systemic, you know, it's not been um, widespread change. So I see, I feel like there are going to be things like that to address certain populations. I'm not really sure um, what there's going to be to address virtual learning as a whole, um, especially given the fact that by the time you end the legislative session, like where will, you know, what situation will we be in? I think the fact that it's just changing, like when, when you really need solutions are now, or when you really need solutions were this summer, or this spring even, um, I think it's hard to know what lawmakers can do through the legislative process that could help this year's students. Right. right. Okay, well, that I think is all the time we have for this week. Thank you to Ross, Aaliyah, and Cassie for joining us. Thank you to our sponsors, Episcopal Health Foundation, Texas Bankers Association, Methodist Healthcare Ministries, and Poinsett. And thank you to our producer, Michael Ray. Everyone have a great Thanksgiving, and we will talk to you all next week. <laughs>